0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Acrostic poems will be my focus for tonight. Care must be taken to. Do them justice, for we might err in reading if we fail to understand their form. God, through his word, this I hope, will provide in this hour, if we allow some time, just a few mnemonic truths kindly offered to you. Let me begin by firmly making note of the real necessity of rhythm or rhyme for making it plain that a poem's inner quality is heard or read when the proper stress of syllable is to be taken into account. Then the unusual mark of vocal pause is best perceived. We now can see that these extreme cases do appear, yielding fruitful discourse, zany as it may be. End. Hopefully you have just now picked up that I was just, that what I just read to you was itself an acrostic poem, constructed on thus 26 English letters and formed on a seven and six syllable pattern. I bring this up not to praise myself, though it was no small effort to construct that, uh, but to make you aware that such patterning is worth noting if perceived in the scriptures but can also be easily overlooked and imperiled by later readers or copyists of the Bible. So the text that we have has been transmitted to us over centuries and over generations, and for us living in America, over continents from where they were originally written. And occasionally things crop up because people are copying by hand, and as I attest to, your hand gets very sloppy after a while, And things change. So the acrostic poem that is Psalm 9 and 10 has been uh, abbreviated to make it the easiest way of saying. We have 17 of the expected 22 verses that are remaining. So there are 22 Hebrew letters. We have 17 of them testified in Psalms 9 and 10. Uh, over the course of history, with both the patterning of this, this rhyme pattern, as well as the, the way the psalm was composed and edited, um, even the psalm breaks between 9 and 10 are the result of nuances that are introduced into the text. This doesn't change the way the Bible reads, and in fact, I'm going to argue that we can still see what the original poem wanted us to say. Now, this division of what was one song into two psalms that we have recorded, so we have Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, that's actually just one big song, it's a little bit like having 15 choruses, you know, in the hymns at church, Nothing, not saying anything about anyone here. Um, but because of its length, which is two lines of verse for every letter of the alphabet, um, we, Vince, and I have further divided over the times we've looked at this passage into four different sections for the ease of our own preaching. You just see how long this sermon goes. You can imagine if I did all 44 verses, I might have a child by then. Not that I don't have a child now, nothing's happened. I was just saying, it's just okay. Maybe I'm just gonna move on. Sorry, that was not my toast. I'm sorry, Katie. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, my wife is back there and she's giving me the evil eye right now. Uh, despite the danger of overworking these transmissional choices, I would like to riff on this two or four unit pattern for a few more moments. Here in our passage, which is Psalm 10, verses 12 through 18, we have two perspectives, which are actually four. First, God and humanity. Second, God, the wicked and the oppressed. Third, God as silent versus God as active. And fourth, humanity as sinful versus humanity as redeemed. This evening, I would like to relay to you four roles that the God displays when injustice he dismays. Yes, I just rhymed my mnemonic takeaway message. And we even had a pun, injustice versus Injustice. So let me say it one more time. Your applause can be inserted here or groans as you feel appropriate. So four roles that God displays when injustice he dismays. In Psalm 10, we have four roles that God displays when he responds to the injustice with justice as he interacts with our world. So let's begin reading Psalm 10, uh, verses 12 through 18. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hands. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, you will not require. You have seen it, for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan." Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Returning back to verse 12, we see in the first phrase the appeal of the psalmist for God to act. Arise, O Lord God! Because of Psalm 9 and 10 being an acrostic unity, I'm going to be making references back and forth to different passages in 9 and 10 that the psalmist keeps repeating. He keeps repeating because they have an important message to communicate. So looking up at Psalm 9, verse 19... We read, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, let the nations be judged before you. The Hebrew term kuma, which appears to open the Q verse that we have here, means to arise for action. And the image is the Lord stands up from his throne to bring justice and judgment. But kuma also echoes two other, and there are probably several others, experiences in the life of Israel. The corporate experience of the wilderness in Numbers 10.35. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Which we read in Numbers 10 is, about, is the battle cry of Israel when they go out against these nations as well as the personal salvation experience that we find in psalm 3 verse 7 arise o lord save me o my god for you have smitten all of my enemies on their cheeks you have shattered the teeth of the wicked not unlike thor in a very recent marvel movie but he doesn't have to use, but god doesn't have to use a hammer he is the hammer okay just not sorry all right so. <clears throat> boom Returning to Psalm 10, verse 12, notice that the appeal is made to the Lord God, which is a combination of the holy name of God, yod heh which is known as the Tetragrammaton, if you want to use a big fancy theological term, and the title, El, which means God. Now, the Bible dictionaries... We'll make a big point of this. And so the one I use is called Brown Driver Briggs. And it notes that L implies, quote, the only true God needing no article or predicate to define him. End quote. You don't have to explain who God is, it's just God. It's kind of self-evident. Now, we next see in Psalm 12, in the next line, or the next phrase, lift up your hand. Another commentator, William P. Brown, discussing this particular passage states, quote, While the metaphorical attributes of face and sense highlight the acuteness of God's perceptiveness, particularly in situations of distress... The image of God's hand stresses the efficacy of God's response. Perception and response constitute the essential modes of divine activity. God's lifted hand marks God's resolve to take action, whether it is to deliver the helpless or punish evildoers. God's hand is the necessary metaphorical appendage to execute justice for the orphan and the oppressed. The next phrase in Psalm ten twelve, do not forget the afflicted, resonates to several mentions earlier in the psalm. Beginning in Psalm 9, 12, it states, for he who requires blood remembers them. He does not, for, he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Psalm 9, 18 continues, for the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Psalm 10, verse 11, which closed the last section before today, so last week's reading, if I'm right, yes, reads, the wicked says to himself, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Brown continues, as the Human face often conveys a variety of emotions, both positive and negative, so God's face conveys a range of divine activity, from favor and blessing to punishment and rebuke. First and foremost, God's face is something for which the psalmist yearns. It marks the personal God who is sought, but not necessarily found. As the object of desperate yearning and the subject of edifying import, the unveiled face of God also has its converse, namely the hiding of his face, a prominent motif in Laments. Like the closed eye or the stopped ear, God's hidden face either connotes willful neglect or is perceived as incapacity and forgetfulness. Both of which give license for the wicked to act with impunity. Here in Psalm ten twelve through fourteen, we see the psalmist dispute this notion of God's slothfulness. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, act, do something, God. The new interpreter's Bible commentary sees these verses, 12 through 14, as a direct response to the claims in verse 11. The wicked says, God has forgotten you. But the psalm says, God does not forget. The wicked argues, God has hidden his face. But the psalm affirms, God will lift up his hand of judgment. The wicked counters, God will never see what I do. But the psalm defends, he has already seen it. But you may say, what's the big deal? Doesn't God have better things to do than to concern himself with my petty disputes with my neighbor or my coworker or my enemy? Brown argues in short, to deprive the deity of the visual and auditory senses of seeing and hearing, is to deny God's saving character and passion for justice. Indeed, to assert that God will not seek this out is tantamount to the claim that there is no God. We might call this as Peter Craigie and Rolf Jacobson have in their psalms commentaries, practical or theoretical atheism, or living and behaving as if God does not exist, whether he does or he doesn't. Quote, because they live their lives without the fear of God, practical atheists feel free to oppress the widow, the orphan, and the weak, says Jacobson. Which brings us to Psalm 1013, which begins. On what basis has the wicked reviled God? This echoes an earlier passage in Psalm 10, verses 3 through 4. For the wicked boasts of his heart, of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are There is no God. So pervasive is this thinking in the mind of the wicked that there is almost no hope for his redemption or even his repentance. Mitchell Dahoud, who is a very famous Bible commentator in Psalms, reads the Hebrew of the first line of 13 as, Forever the wicked shall revile God. How tragic is this station of the wicked, who may possess all riches and power, who may have schemes upon schemes to gain such riches and power, who may even now be plotting and awaiting the sunset that he may get on with his evil business. How tragic that he, like the second phrase of Psalm 1013, has said in his heart, you will not require... We've already seen the echo of Psalm 1011 that I made reference before. But let's go a little bit higher in the psalm, and we see it Psalm 106, the wicked says to himself, I will not be moved. Throughout all generations, I will not be in adversity. This is a bold claim. The wicked is saying, not only will God not judge me now, but he won't judge me in whatever comes after. I will never be caught, I will never be held account to, I get a free pass to do whatever I want. How tragic, because he, buck your seatbelts, or maybe we have been completely deluded. The problem is not, can I get away with it? evading the long arm of justice until you lie smugly in your grave? No, my friends, it is that there is no a way to get to. First, let us read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, Of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Notice how the ungodly suppress the truth. A truth known to them from within them, which is why they must say to themselves repeatedly and secretly in their hearts, There is no God. They keep saying this because they know otherwise and do not want to admit the truth. They seek to suppress that they may do wickedness without fear of repercussion. But that is not all, or even the worst part. No, not only do we all know better now, but now in our own time we know more and fearsomely more than Romans 1. Now, my friend, is there not only knowledge of the truth, but also knowledge of impending judgment, right? We don't need the psalmist to say, arise, O Lord, lift up your hand. We see his hand already lifted up. How so? Acts 17, 24 through 31, the sermon of Paul on Mars Hill in Athens, although I'm going to read just a few parts of it. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. For in him we live and move and exist. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him, that man, from the dead. Here in Acts, we see two fearsome truths. One... You have misused and continue to misuse the good gifts of God. Your resources, not to mention your very life and the breath which you are exchanging in your lungs at this very moment, is given to you from God. And you, my friend, continually, unceasingly, and sometimes unconsciously, Use it against the God who is making you and loves you and sustains you. Two, if that wasn't bad enough, that you don't, you just reap up judgment for breathing, is what Paul is saying. Just for being your sinful self, you are just like chalking it up. Okay, that wasn't enough. Let's just get to number two. The judge, who is Jesus, has already been appointed, and the court date is already on the cosmic calendar. Judgment is coming. How do I know this? Let's go back to Psalm 10. You see, you thought I was going to be off in the New Testament and I wasn't going to get back. I'm always back to the passage. This is coming from the passage. Back now to Psalm 10:14. You, God, have seen trouble and grief. God himself has seen all of this. Sees all of this. The Hebrew is emphatic. It is literally, you have seen, yes, you, trouble and grief. Now, what has been seen? In Hebrew is, amal it's a fun word to say, a fun little phrase to say, is ambiguous. Those words uh, are terms that mean trouble or toil or mischief on one hand, and vexation or grief on the other hand. I think that the combination of them is meant to encompass everything from the merely frustrating, one might say, Amal, it's enough to make you cuss. That was, okay, thank you. Thank you for laughing, all right. All the way up to the despicably criminal oppression of one human against another for which the psalmist is invoking God to act. And God has seen it, everything, all of it, nothing left out. He has seen it from his throne, the psalmist says, and opened this section with. And he has seen it in the flesh when he, Jesus, walked in this sin-stained world among us sinful people, as a human himself. He has seen it all, and he is not happy about it. Now, if this wasn't a difficult enough sermon to preach, you know, this is one of those happy, fluffy sermons that makes everyone have good, warm feelings about themselves we're going to need to put on the gospel floaties, okay? We're about to get into the deep end of the pool, and we're about to do some work, okay? Because this next phrase in the English translation is a real problem. Okay? Let me get out my Hebrew, okay, so I can read it to you. Okay. In the Hebrew text, it says, be it which means something like you will take it into your hand, and that sounds like it works, and you know why it sounds like it works because the person who's copying it didn 't really understand what happened because somehow uh, all through the copying we kind of messed up the letters right this is like the my like your hand gets kind of sloppy and you're Your M's and your N's and your H's and your A's kind of get all mushed together, and you're like, I don't know what this is. Now, what it probably says is, Tabet Layatom Badech. How do I know this? One, the commentators who bring together the text for us to study, the Hebrew text, had this nice little apparatus thing at the bottom, and they said, probably delete this and replace with this other thing. So They're like, that doesn't make any sense. Also, at the very bottom in verse 18, I'll go ahead and jump you to that. At the beginning of verse 18, it says, to show justice, or to defend, the orphan and the oppressed, which is, yatom vadech. And I think it's talking about yatom vadech the whole time. So what does that mean? If you follow what I think it says, it now reads, you show regard to the orphan and the oppressed. The unfortunate one entrusts himself to you, you have been a helper to the orphan. Which makes a little bit more sense, I think. It's a nice little symmetrical pattern. To the orphan and the oppressed, you were a friend, To the oppressed you say this, and to the orphan you do this. Now that's one of those psalm, parallelisms, rhyming things that we see from Hebrew. At one level it doesn't matter whether it's you will take it into your hand or you will show regard to the orphan and the the oppressed. But the important part is that God acts as a protector, that he is personally responsible for this thing. He has not hidden his face, as it suggests in verse 11 of chapter 10, the verse where the wicked one says that God has hidden his face, but instead he is getting his hands quite dirty in resolving the problem for the person who has no one else to resolve it for them. In the ancient world, there were three people, three groups, that had no one to advocate for them. The orphan who has no father, the widow who has no husband, and the oppressed who has no champion to defend them. And in the ancient world, it was kill or be killed. So if you have no one to defend you, You get killed. You get oppressed. You get your stuff taken from you. You get sinful things done to you. You get injustice and not justice. And God says, no, 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 no. No. I am the defender of the oppressed. I am a husband to the widow, and I am a father to the orphan. It doesn't just say it here. It says it many many places to the point that in James the mark of holiness for the christian is that he defends the orphan the widow and in the end of the book of James the one who is being oppressed by his rich slave master something to think about in our society in which we oppress one another. I'm just going to drop that bomb. I'm going to walk away. Good. The unfortunate one entrusts himself to you is the next phrase. Here's the problem again. Which is you know we're getting into that deep end with our with our gospel floaties on. Okay, it doesn't say himself in the text. It says the unfortunate one entrusts to you. And you're supposed to ask, trust, what? And the translators go, himself? So a little bit of a grammatical lesson. There are two, There's two forms of a verb that we can talk about. The first form of verb is the normal verb, the, what we might call, this is English lessons for some of you who you know, don't remember this from high school, the transitive form, which is you do X to something or other. I give you the ball. So if I just said, I give you... You're waiting for me to say, you give me what? That's transitive. The other form is nifal, which is the intransitive form, which means I do something to myself, like I comb hair. And you don't have to ask, well, who's hair? You just say your own hair, unless you don't have it. Hey. I'm, just, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not looking at anyone. I'm looking at the back of the room. I'm not looking at anyone. But you come here is intransitive, or in in the form of Hebrew, it's niphal. The verb here they want to have is niphal. He entrusts himself to you, but it doesn't say that. It's in calls. It says he entrusts to you. May I suggest that what we are entrusting depends on the you. Each of you has a different situation that you must entrust to the Lord. Some may be dealing with sickness. Some may be dealing with a broken marriage. Some may be dealing with a child who was rebellious. Some of you may be dealing with an oppressive taskmaster. Some of you may be the oppressive taskmaster. But the unfortunate one entrusts, insert here your item, to God. Why? Because God is the champion of the oppressed. So, I can't be sure. I'm not going to, you know go to the mat over whether it's call or if all and whether we pointed it right because that's a verb thing. We're not going to get into that. But I find it very interesting that we put himself in there when I think that it has more to do with the situation because the whole passage thus far is dealing with there's this oppressive person over here. God, why don't you get up and do something? Just going to put that out there. You have been a helper to the orphan, That it's pretty clear. I feel like I can say it. We can move on. Cover that with the whole entrust himself. Other part. Trying to keep it short. Okay. Now we get to the fun part. What does God do when he lifts up his hand? Verse 15. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. So the Lord is... A main character in the WWE. Or maybe the octagon. This is not warm, fuzzy, precious moments, Jesus. This is fire in his eye, sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus. And this is a fearsome thing because we are in one of two places in regards to this psalm. We are either the orphan or we are the wicked one. Next phrase. Require his wickedness Until you find none. Now, again, we have another problem here. I'm I'm trying not to keep the problems. It's the passage that Vince gave me. I'm sorry. I think he gave me the part with all the problems in it because you don't have to deal with them. Vince said, exactly, you're welcome. Um, He says, require your wickedness, you will find none. And again, we have to put an until in there because we don't know what that means. I'm going to suggest in just a few moments that that's, again, a purposeful choice by the psalmist. Or a purposeful choice by the Lord as He's preserved the psalm as it comes down to us and makes it all weird. So now we get to the part that all of you who have been doing church things for a while are ready for, which is what are the four roles that God displays when injustice He dismays? Right? Because I'm not giving you a literated point. My beloved wife, who's the daughter of a pastor and now the husband of a sort of a preacher person, I guess, um, knows that you're supposed to communicate from the beginning what the four things are. If you say there are four things, then you have to tell me the fourth thing. Because you say the four things, then I say, one, first thing is blah, blah, blah. And then, what did I not do with this entire time? I haven't told you what the first thing was. But the point is, I have told you the first thing, now I'm going to circle back because that's what the psalm does, and it's going to tell you what the first thing is the first role that the Lord displays when injustice he dismays is that God is king. Full stop. Verse 12 and verse 16 show us this. Arise, O Lord God. And in verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. Your oppressor is not on the throne, and you are not on the throne. God is on the throne, He has always been on the throne, He is always will be on the throne. Full stop. Hope you like that. What does a God who is king do? That's the second phrase. Second phrase of verse 12 lift up your hand. Verse 16 nations have perished from His land. If you go back and you read through the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament as we sometimes call it, and you look at the way God brought people from the wilderness or brought them back from exile, there was a recurring theme. Big, powerful, oppressive nation is in the land. They're like giants, man. There's too many of them. Their wall's like four feet thick. They're like Babylon. And God's like, Your point? Does anyone know where the Amorites live now? They don't. Does anyone know where the Canaanites are? They aren't. If you go to Baghdad in Iraq, you are happily able to tour the ruins of Babylon in the middle of a desert where no one lives. Nations perish from the land that God possesses because God lifts up his hand in judgment against them. Something for us to think about as we live in a nation and a land that still belongs to God. You want to be on the the nice part of the hand slap, right? Right? Right, not the not the bad not the bad part. Right, just putting that out there. Thank you. Do not forget the afflicted, the pain of the afflicted one. You have heard in verse seventeen. Now, this is where I'm going to pause for just a moment and read another quote to you. If I can find where I put my quote again, here it is. <clears throat> the purpose of alphabetic acrostics is somewhat debated. As many pointed out, the acrostic devices aid in memory and recitation, but to what end? Perhaps the purpose of this psalm was instruction in prayer and praise, or more likely the purpose is a prayer for help. But I—that that is what one commentator, Jacobson, says, but I'm going to suggest that he is wrong. I've already done that today anyway, so I'm not, you shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to suggest that this is telling us about the God who helps and what his help looks like. So, what kind of help does God, the judge, the king, do When he judges as king, he renders justice and mercy. This is where your head's supposed to fall off, and you're supposed to not understand what that means. Because when you go to the human court and you want justice, you don't want mercy. And when you go to the human court and you want mercy, you don't want justice, right? You run into the side of someone's car, you want mercy. You get your car run into, you want justice. Nobody in any of these situations want justice and mercy at the same time. But you know what? God doesn't care. That's what he does. So now we're going to find the scarlet thread in a single verse, Vince. Pencils at the ready. Let us begin. So the word... Ta'avat, for pain or wound or desire or wish, means a lot of different things. And the word anaim, for humble, could possibly be the word ainim, which means your eye. And you're like, okay, you've really lost me, Andrew. Let me break it down for you. This should sound familiar to some of you. God set for us a boundary, a tavah, in the beginning. Of all of the trees of the garden you may eat except for this tree, you may not eat of this tree because if you eat of this tree, you will die. But we desired with our eyes... Tava and sinned in the garden. And the woman Eve saw the fruits, and she saw that it was good, good pleasing to the eyes, and desirable for food, and desirable for wisdom. And she took it and she ate it and she gave it to her husband. There's a problem. What did God say it was going to happen? Not good things. But God has to render justice and mercy. What should have happened? Holy slapdown. Right? God said, Die. Die. What happened? And the Lord said to the angel, Go and set a boundary that they may not come and eat of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. What's the problem? You're scared that God wants you to die. God is scared that you will live apart from him. Mind blown. We're only on point two. There's, three, there's two more to go in this one little verse, okay? Whew. No. Whew, it's getting warm up here, okay? Not only did we sin before, and you're thinking, okay, well, that was like Adam and Eve. That was like, I don't know, a gazillion years ago, and like in the garden, and like, you know, like, like a, I went to the creation museum, I saw that picture, and was fine. No, no, no. We continually, uninterruptedly, as it said before, sin against God. We test him, and we try him, and we turn away from him, says Psalm seventy-eight forty-one, and it causes God Distress. We have wounded him by humbling him. You see what I'm saying? you back to your verse? Back to verse 17. The desire of the humble one can also be read as the wound of the humble one. And God afflicts himself, wound, because he heard our cry of humility. How do I know that? Flip with me, if you will to Psalm 22, which for some of you, you will know that this sounds very familiar. I'm going to have to find my bookmark, hold on. Okay. No, nope, that's not what I want. I did not want that one, I want this one over here. There it is, okay. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from my words of groaning? I am poured out like water, all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted my breast. My strength is dried up like a part shirt. I'm in verse 15, by the way. Uh, And my tongue sticks to my jaws, they lay me in the dust of death. They have pierced my hands and my feet, they count all of my bones. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothes they have cast lots. And at this point, it should remind you of a scene in Jerusalem in approximately the first century, probably the year 33, in which a man is crucified for you. And that man said, verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You you who fear God, praise him. All of you, offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of things. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted and has not turned his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. God hears us when we cry to him. But do we cry to him? That he may hear us. Here is possibly a break in the text. And we see that it says, The Lord, you will strengthen his heart. You will incline your ear to him. To whose heart? To whom? Does the Lord incline himself? Many commentators see this as an error. The to them, which may be in your translations, is sometimes omitted because they're not sure if that's also a part of the corruption. One to sees it as you will give attention, but gives us no thing that he gives attention to. Another Briggs sees it as completely a scribal error and needs to be ignored entirely. And I say, they're wrong. Because the Lord inclines his ear to someone, he strengthens someone's heart, the desire of the humble he has heard from someone. Who? Verse 18 Vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. I've got nothing my notes, right? Now, the orphan, the oppressed, in verse 18, I used back in verse 14 to, to argue that it was supposed to be the orphan and the oppressed. And God there is to be the father to the orphan, the husband to the widow, the champion to the... The oppressed, it is to these that he inclines his ear. The God who sees is the God who hears, is the God who acts in justice and in mercy. And you will excuse me as I flipped my page back and realized that I've left off one of my points. So if I may review for the sake of those keeping notes. God is king, God is judge, and God is father. And those last two or three don't really strike us as that familiar. Recently, the governor general of Canada accidentally put his hand on the queen of England and not a few people were shocked and appalled by this. Because you do not touch the queen. But God inclines his ear to the desire and the call of the oppressed. He lifts up his hand not only in judgment against the oppressor, but to show mercy, kindness, compassion, love to the one being oppressed. Back in verse 14, you have been a helper to the orphan. And in verse 18, to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed. Now, this father image continues even though the last image of the psalm brings us back to the military. Brown suggests that the patterning of the Psalms is purposeful, that you have to declare God as judge before you can declare God as warrior. That in righteousness, God must know what is just before he can dispense punishment upon you. But he forgets something. He forgets that God is also Father. The suggestion that the judge is also a warrior is true. But the judge is also a father and a king, and the fourth role. He is a victorious warrior. Many people go out to fight in our human world in many different arenas for what they think is right. They protest, they riot, they fight, they revolt, they overthrow, they replace, and sometimes they are not successful. God has been and always will be successful in his judgment. The book of Revelation is very strange for this reason. Well, one is that there's a lot of like flying locusts and dragons and lambs, they're lions, and all sorts of weird like swords coming out of your mouth. That's the most tame stuff. It gets real weird after that. I don't know if you've read the book. So you're like, you know, like just read the first part, and then you're like. And then there's like, I don't know, like a Jim Henson movie in the middle of it. And then we get to the part that's the good part. And the good part is that everything evil in our world is defeated. Satan is defeated. The wicked nations are defeated. And in something that doesn't really make sense to me, but it's got to be true because it's in the Bible, death is defeated in that there's like a person who's death, who God picks up and throws him into the lake of fire where he can't do death anymore. But Andrew, you said that if we sinned, the punishment is death. I did. But God defeats death because he defeats sin and he brings about justice with mercy. And in the end, this is the point that I'm actually pointing to, in the very end there's a part that I think people miss. When we get to the garden again in heaven there's the tree of life. But there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we already know the knowledge of good and evil. We don't need that tree anymore. We buried that tree a long time ago. But there's still a tree for life and it's Leaves are, quote, for the healing of the nations. Those nations which have perished from the earth, God loved, even as He judged them. The oppressors who in their wickedness deserve God's wrath also had His love. I can't explain to you why God does that, because I'm not him. And if he wants to love and wrath at the same time, I'm not going to try to stop him. Righteous hand of incantation hurts a little bit, right? I don't want to get caught on the wrong side of that hand, right? Yeah? You with me? You feeling it? Okay. the end of verse 18 that he may not do again to cause terror the man from the earth I kind of broke it up a little bit for a purpose who's the he is it the man or is it the you from above you God who's not doing again the bringing of terror See, we think of God too often, I think, as fluffy, squishy, pastel, soft focus, holding sheep, precious moments, Jesus. But Jesus in Revelation doesn't look like that. Jesus in Revelation has a sword come out of his mouth, and he has the names of the nations inscribed in his hand, and he's bringing the holy smackdown on the world and sin and death. May I suggest to you that it is both. When God in his victorious justice brings about his victory, the man of terror will not again do terror in the world. All oppressors will be defeated. And he will put an end... To his own terror, because apart from sin, there is no need for his wrath to be upon us. Ambiguity in the text is actually our friend, is what I'm saying. So when you get to a passage that's a little bit hard, please don't Google it. Because you get like 150 things that are wrong with the Bible, and I really don't like those. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back and look at the character of God in the text. Four roles God has displayed. When in justice he dismays. God as king. In the beginning God created by the very words of his mouth everything that we seek. I don't know how that works, but he did it. And he does it continually, Acts 17, for we live and move and exist in his being, not in some weird way, but in that he dispenses to us life and breath and all the things that we need for life. He does that because he's a king and he runs the whole show when he doesn't need anything from us because he gives it all to us. Catalina, a thousand hills. You can't even, like, my foot cannot even be contained in your temple. That kind of God, that kind of king. God is a judge, and when we have sinned against him, he still works justice through it. He gives the sword of justice to the governments of man, but he also gives justice into the hearts of each and every human being that we may seek justice. That's why it bothers us when we see injustice. That is the testimony of God in us that judgment comes and he's going to make it all right because he's the king and he's the judge. Order is important here. But he is also a father. Because if he was just a king and a judge, we should be scared. Because we don't have any power and we don't have any standing in front of the king judge. But when he's a king judge father, who cares for us and loves us and interposed himself to free us and save us, then it gets to be better news. And finally, when he is a king, judge, father, victor, we know that he is going to finish the task. He will end oppression. He will end injustice he will defeat evil and his kingdom of justice and love will be established yeah. now how do you get to be a part of this how do you enter into the righteous kingdom of god's compassionate love, and victorious overcoming. Well, I've already said it twice. You may have missed it, so I'm going to say it one more time. I said it once up at that one verse that was really weird where we talked about the garden and then our sin and then God sacrificed himself for us. Let me say it again. And I just said it right then when I finished, but let me say it the third time. Because, you know, if you say it three times, then maybe you'll catch it. You ready? You are not right. You are very not right. There is a lot wrong with you. The wrongness, wrongness, not rightness? The wrongness, we'll just go with that. I don't know if that's a word. I'm going to use it anyway. That's what happens when I go off script a little bit. The wrongness goes all the way down. There's nothing you can do about it. I heard an image once that if we were supposed to think of good and evil as black tiles and white tiles on the floor. And then, you know, in work, the way we think we're gonna save ourselves is that we're just gonna get down, and we're gonna scrub the black tiles until the whiteness reveals itself. Here's the problem: there's only black tiles. And they're black all the way down. No amount of scrubbing, no amount of sudsing, no amount of effort is going to get you to purity. But God doesn't have that problem. He's righteous, he's just, he's pure, he's holy. He's so holy, he's holy of holy of holy so holy that when you see him, all that is contaminated in this world bursts into flames. People fall down on their face. People are not ready for the justice and judgment of God. But God is also loving and loves you so much that he left the high, exalted justice of his kingdom and assumed, took on the form of the lowliest human. A baby in a feed trough in a small town in a backwater province of the Roman Empire, whose parents couldn't even afford a room in their hometown and had to live in the stable. And yet, angels sing at his birth. And kings come to bow before him. Then he lived in a small village in the middle of nowhere. Obedient to his parents, righteous before God and man. Taught some people for a few years. Showed them God's love. And what did they do? They killed him. They spat on him. They disowned him. They rejected him. And in that moment, the Bible describes it that all of creation seems to be fleeing from his very presence. Even the light of the day does not fall on him. And yet, he didn't stay dead. See, we, we, we forget that part. That's the important part. See, it would have been enough if God had just given us a sacrifice, right? You just had to have a sacrifice. God didn't give us a sacrifice. He gave us hope. He wasn't just a judge and a loving father. He was also a victor. Remember I told you about that whole thing about how God how the, how death personified gets picked up and thrown into the lake of fire? That's not a future event. It's already happened. Right? Because death tried to hold the God-man in the grave. But on the third day, he didn't do it. He came out. Right. Amen. And then he ascends back to the Father which is really the judge taking his seat in the courtroom. Remember Act 17? He has appointed the man and has made him proof that he is the one by raising him from the dead. You can have all of that. But you can't do it on your own. You need him to do it. Dear Father, your word is powerful. It is illuminating. It is inspiring. And it sometimes nails us to the floor. I ask, Lord, that your power will be displayed in our hearts in this moment. Your righteous power as king will rule over us as we consider our position in this universe, in this created order, in subjection to you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of heaven and earth. I pray, Lord, that your word will have power in instilling justice in our hearts, not only reminding us of the justice you revealed to us, the justice we so eagerly desire, but also the justice that we desperately must face, a justice which reveals to us all of the wrong and sin that we have done. We pray, Lord, that you would also reveal to us in the moment of conviction your deep, deep love for us. A love so powerful that you took on all of this, all of our humanity and our sin. You brought it upon yourself, Jesus, so that you would have power over it. And you would instill justice in it and still show us mercy in it. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be victorious in our life in the coming days, that you would awaken dead hearts to you, that you would open closed eyes to you, that you would unstop ears that we may hear this gospel and this freedom that you offer to us, and that you may guide us in the days to come, in the process of becoming less sinful and more holy as we pursue you and your justice in our lives and in our world. We pray this, Holy Father, as we approach your table and remember the sacrifice of the Son, the power of the Spirit. For as your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give,